Second Thessalonians chapter two. We're going to look at verses one through. We're going to go all the way through twelve, though we might not make it all the way through twelve. Um, <clears throat> let's read first together. Second Thessalonians chapter, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through twelve, and then we will dive in. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know... What is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who, is, who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wickedness and deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we consider this, I want you to think about uh, some things. First, there are a great deal of perspectives on the end times, nuanced perspectives. And... I just want to share two things with you. One, lighten up. That's the first one. Lighten up, loosen up a little bit. You don't have to argue about end times perspectives. You can listen. You can engage. You can sharpen one another. You can have different points of view. It's okay. In light of that, I would like to commend you a book that is out of print, so I won't give you my copy. But you can look at it at lunch. It's this book, Kingdom Come, uh, Wildlife in the Kingdom Come. It's a fun book that is uh, written by Ken C. Johnson and John H. Coe. And they uh, basically satirically educate you on every theological point of view that they can think of in the book. And it's very funny and very cute. And it will help you to lighten up while taking it seriously. While, while engaging in discussion, it will help you to lighten up. So that's the first thing. Second thing to remember as we approach end times doctrines and in eschatology, and as we read these, these passages like this one this morning that talks about the lawless one and, and lawlessness and all these things coming and, and how things are going to happen, is to remember that Paul evidently taught this uh, early on to Christians, that this was something basic to him. Uh, he was only with the Thessalonians for a couple weeks, and he tells you right there in the passage, don't you remember what I taught you about this? So this is not a heavy thing for deep believers. This is like the doctrine of predestination. It's at the beginning of the letters. Every letter starts with this idea. So it's not a heavy doctrine that you should run away from. It is a doctrine that you should you should read, engage with, struggle through and get through. Same thing with eschatology. It's not something to be scared of. It is evidently something Paul taught to new believers. Um, So, that having been said, 
And with no further, uh, I don't know, introduction, let's dive into this text. Uh, I want you to consider the anxiousness in the world of a world in chaos. Paul is writing to these brothers a second time about the second coming. And he's writing amidst a culture where they are being taxed for no reason. They're being oppressed and told they can't get certain jobs because they don't worship pagan deities. Their ruler has set himself up as God. Caesar, at this point, has said, I am God. He has made himself God. So, so that's the context in which they are in. They, they have a, uh, a, a coin that they use in common, common everyday price that says Caesar is God. Like it's, it's a praise to Caesar. And it's a coin they use in commerce every day. So they are surrounded by this. It's a world in chaos, a world in which there are people setting themselves up as kings. And it seems like everything is falling apart. Now, on some level, I know we can relate. Because we feel this sometimes. We often feel the tension of political stuff going on and and the world at war rumors of wars and wars everywhere and and we hear about rulers setting themselves up with no accountability we we feel this way paul spent a few weeks with the thessalonians and he wrote about the second coming to encourage them in chapter in chapter in the first book in first thessalonians 1 I mean, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, encourage one another with these words. And then again, in 5, verse 11, he says, encourage one another with these words. You're supposed to encourage one another by thinking about the end times. And what greater encouragement is there, to be honest, than Jesus' return to get his bride? What greater encouragement is there than the fact that our heavenly king is going to return and conquer everything including us and we will be caught up with him in the clouds in his return and we will come like a welcoming party coming out for the bridegroom who has come what greater joy but even amidst all that encouragement anxiety persists Right? You watch the news for five minutes, you feel anxiety. That's on purpose, by the way. They keep you watching by getting you anxious. You watch, anxi- you watch the news for five minutes, anxiety persists. You listen to people talk, anxiety persists. The world is in turmoil and things are crazy. Then you think, well, maybe I'll listen to some uh, teachers online. And that's another mistake. Because you go online and they start teaching you about things that aren't true. And you watch YouTube videos and TikToks of things that are, that are prophecies that aren't accurate. But you don't know. And they show you some picture of a desert field. And they go, see, the earth is drying up. And you go, it is. And then it takes five minutes to go look up the fact that, no, that's the dry season in some Saharan desert area that has been that way for thousands of years. And every April it gets that way. And every September it floods again. So the dry river basin is not drying up. That's the same way it's been for thousands of years. Stop panicking. And yet we get panicked Fake letters start coming about and fake prophecies. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Look at that. Look there in verse 2. Do not, we admonish you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So let's pause. They, that, that is what's going on is they have this, this idea. There's this attitude of, there's this, Attitude of, of this, the Lord has already come. This is already done. We're, we're over with. Like, you missed it kind of thing. And, and so everybody's getting nervous. And then somebody speaks a word. Somebody speaks a word. Remember when we talked about prophecy in the book of First Thessalonians, when somebody prophesies, it is always specific, it is always thorough, and it is always from Scripture. It always is validated by Scripture. If a prophecy is not 
thorough, it is not specific, and it is not from Scripture, then it's not true. Um, so when we, when we hear somebody say, I have a word from the Lord from, for you, one, they better be able to back it up with Scripture. Uh, two, it better be specific. And three, they need to be very, very careful because God kills people for that kind of thing in the Old Testament. Um, he has very specific laws about prophecies and how they are to be delivered and who's allowed to give them. And if somebody gives a false prophecy, you know what the punishment was? In the Old Testament, this is not a rhetorical question. Do you know? Stoning, death. They were supposed to be brought before the people of Israel, proclaimed as a false prophet and shown to be a false prophet and then stoned. They were to be killed. And this was a deep and serious thing. We do not take the word of God lightly. When God says, I have a word, when somebody says, I have a word from the Lord for you, you should pause and go, okay, now just wait. Are you sure? Because this could go very, very bad for you if you're lying. This is God does not appreciate people taking his word and saying it's from him. So with that in mind, I just, as a side note, they're going to be answered. I know in the back of your brain, you're going, what about all those people who have done it now in the last few years? Just, they're going to be answered. They're going to be answered. And that's part of what we're reading about. That's part of what we read about here in the second coming of Christ. But our God is merciful and gracious and kind, allowing even time for them to repent. Allowing even time for them to repent, which is baffling. How gracious is our God to allow people to blatantly defy him and yet offer grace after grace after grace? And we know, we know he offers grace after grace after grace because I'm still breathing. You're still breathing. And he doesn't have to let us do that. So Paul is writing them and they are feeling the weight of these false prophecies. Maybe they're even uh, gathering together over coffee in the morning to talk about the global conspiracies that are going on and the various things that have happened and how the Lord has already come and and people have missed it and all these various things. And um, he... He wants to admonish them. And there's a couple things he pauses for here in verse 1 and 2, and even some in verse 3, to, before he dives into reiterating what has happened and what he has already taught them. So before we jump any further, let's look now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So first, uh, he says, we're coming and gathering the coming of Jesus and the gathering together here are one and the same. Grammatically, this is, a, this is one topic. Coming of Jesus and gathering together with him are one and the same. It's what we saw in 1 Thessalonians when he said, when he comes, we will, be, we will meet him in the clouds. We will be gathered with him. First, the dead in Christ will rise, and then we will meet him in the clouds, and this is the coming and gathering, meeting together. And it says there in chapter 4 that we will be with him always. So this is a gathering together of his people. So the positive end of this is in the judgment of Jesus Christ. At the same time there is judgment coming, there is rescue. Because they are one and the same action. When Jesus comes to judge the people of the earth and judge the world and end the, end the earth, when he comes to end the sin on earth, he will gather his people together at the same time. So the same action of judgment that should terrify everyone is the same action of rescue that should bring grace and delight to the heart of believers. That's why it's an encouragement. That's why we encourage one another with these words. He's going to set everything right. Everybody's going to be judged and believers are going to be rescued. Justly rescued. Remember we talked about uh, a week or two ago, justly rescued. Because if Jesus, if God has poured out the wrath of God on Jesus, then it is just that he should save. Because the penalty has been paid, therefore it is right that he would save people. So, we see first, the day of the Lord 
is coming. This is, I want to just for a moment, I want to give you a couple verses you can look up. Uh, some people like to separate the day of the Lord from the coming of Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's uh, allowable in scripture. Um, I, I don't think you can do that. I think uh, multiple places in scripture talks about the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus is coming, the day of Jesus Christ. Those, uh, those terms refer to the same thing. And I just want to give you a couple passages. You can jot them down. Uh, we're not going to look through all of them, uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you what they are. There's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 here, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, say the day of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, it says the day of our Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says the day of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 10 and 2, verse 16, referring to the same thing, says the day of Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, 2, verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4, 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, it just says that day. So I want you to understand that the coming of Jesus is the day of the Lord of Jesus Christ. Like that's, It's the same. Uh, that's, we, we can't divide those. There's not a, uh, and, and I say that because we, we want to, ju- we want to divide judgment from rescue. Just in our brain, that's what we want to do. We want to divide the two. In reality, those are the same event. Jesus comes back and judgment happens and rescue happens. And the reason that's important is because you need to understand that God is just in your rescue. He is just and right in rescuing you. He's not skirting you around the outside. He's not bringing you around the edge. Like he's not going, well, you should be over here with the goats, but you're, we're going to put you with the sheep. No, he has redeemed you and rescued you righteously and justly. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. And therefore, those penalties are no longer owed by you. You are no longer slave. You are no longer sinner. You are now identified in Scripture as saint, slave to righteousness. You are no longer identified by the monikers of one who is guilty. Rather, you have put on the righteousness of Christ Jesus, and that righteousness covers you because your sin was put on him. So the punishment is paid in Jesus Christ. You have freedom in Jesus Christ. It is important that you grasp this because it is just that God saves you. Because he has paid the penalty. He's paid the penalty. Oh, that we would be people of gratitude who recognize that we're saved and rescued by his work and his work alone. But also people who understand That because he has rescued us, he is perfectly right to do so. He's not skirting some sort of law. He's not breaking some sort of rule. He's not putting you in the back door. He has made you his justly and righteously before the Lord. And that is beautiful. Because what can the adversary say against you now? He can't say anything. He throws sin in your face. Look at how wicked you are. You go, I'm not wicked. I'm not. I've been redeemed and rescued by Christ Jesus. And even even my sin now is covered by him. And God is perfectly just and righteous. And that's why I praise him. Because he is just and holy. And though I do not live up, I am called to walk in a manner worthy. And I will strive to that end. Because he has made it so I can. He's made it so I can. I'm free in him. He's made it so I can walk in him and I can, I can be his child because I am his child. Not because it's some metaphorical, oh, you're kind of like his child. No, you are redeemed and rescued. He adopted you into his kingdom. You're his. None can take you from his hand. No one, not even you. You can't even take you from his hand. You are his. He takes you and he keeps you and he guards you. He who began a good work in you is faithful and just to complete it. He is going to complete the work that he began, that he keeps, and that he is going to finish. And you... 
get to rejoice in that. And whenever something goes in front of you and whenever somebody says you need to be anxious about all the things in this world because, uh uh-oh, what if it's already come? What if something, what if you miss something? God is perfectly just and righteous and good and he has redeemed you. You are his. You will not miss this. You will not miss it. You will not miss it. So next, we see what some are saying. The day has already come. Paul, Paul says, what is, the, what is the point of this false teaching that's been heralded in the church and that people are coming to Thessalonica saying? And it's this, that the Lord, the day of the Lord has come. Somebody's already saying the day of the Lord has come. This is what we read about in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, many will come saying they are the Christ. Look, there's the Christ. It's come. It's happened. Everything has happened. It's all happened. It's all, it's all come. Look, here he is. And Jesus says, do not go after them. Do not listen to them. Paul is admonishing them with the same words. And yes, I believe that Paul was familiar with this teaching of Jesus in chapter 24 of Matthew. I think that he understood that teaching. Um, Yes, Matthew was not yet written, I don't think. I think he probably wrote these letters before Matthew wrote down his gospel. But I think Paul knew Peter. Peter knew these stories. And Peter had talked to him. Paul spent a couple years with Peter, learning from him. And so I think that he knew these stories. I think he knew what Jesus said when when he talks in Matthew chapter 24. And I think he knew about the second coming of Christ. I think he understood these things. And so as he writes here, he says, I think he's thinking about that. About Jesus' warning, do not pursue sensationalism. There's the Christ, there he is. Don't, if it's sensational, you ought to be skeptical of it. Remember this rule. This is a great rule for Christians to remember. Truth trumps ta-da. Ta-da. Truth trumps ta-da. Doesn't matter how many fireworks somebody has if it's not true. Truth trumps ta-da. So when you hear something that's and that you've never heard before and it sounds really kind of exciting and, and your heart starts to race and, and it's anxiety producing, you should pause, take a deep breath and remember the scripture. Remember the scripture because that's what's going on in Thessalonica. Paul has gotten word back from some people and he is writing, listen, people are lying to you. People are lying to you. That's what he's writing back. He's going, look, people are lying to you. Remember what you were taught before. He calls them traditions. Remember what you were taught according to the traditions. Remember these things. So he says here, there's a lying spirit, a false word spoken by somebody, a letter, a false letter. We do know that there were false letters written, by the way. We know that there were letters written claiming to be from Paul. We also know that God divinely preserved scripture and those letters are gone. It's great. Isn't that comforting to know that God is so active on the earth that he actually divinely protected the canon of scripture to where letters went missing and aren't there? Now, we have some fake letters. We have some. They, they show up and they're dated somewhere around 1000 uh, A.D. And I think the earliest one is somewhere around 500 or, or 400 something A.D. And these were false letters and things like the letter of Thomas. Um, you know, we've got a couple of them, but this... This is, uh, this, this is Paul saying there's been somebody writing a bunch of letters. And so they're getting these false letters and they're getting nervous. And, and it's understandable, right? Paul did say in the first letter that a thief would come, somebody would come like a thief in the night. The second coming would come like a thief in the night. And that, that it would be sudden and, and that Christ would, would come real quick. And if you're, not, if you're not prepared, you wouldn't know. But he also said in that same chapter and that same just the verse above and below that you don't need to be worried you're not going to be caught unaware because you are children of the light who walk in the light you are you are aware and fully aware of who Jesus is you will not be caught off guard by the second coming the world will be caught off guard but those who believe in Christ are not going to be caught unaware because you know him And you are of the light. And he doesn't hide those things from you. So when we approach thinking about these things, and and when we approach YouTube videos, and TikToks, and Insta-whatevers, and all these things where people are proclaiming prophecies, and 
giving you tons of information. They give you tons of information. Have you ever seen these videos? They're wild. They give you information after piece of information, and they show you pictures just up and down, up and down, and they're all wrong. They're all wrong, and it doesn't take long to discern that they're in error. Paul gives us some encouragement. He says here, let no one deceive you in any way. Well, actually, go back up to verse 2. He says, first, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either in spirit or either by spirit or spoken word. So do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed in spirit. I appreciate this from Paul. He recognizes that your mind is sometimes apart from your spirit or your heart, as we would say in English. Right? Our hearts sometimes run ahead of our mind. Our mind sometimes runs ahead of our heart. And we... Uh, we get nervous and filled with anxiety and anxiousness and we have to understand, do not let your mind be quickly shaken and do not let your heart be alarmed by these things, by these false prophecies. But remember what you've been said. So first, let's think about do not let your mind be shaken. Do not be quickly shaken. Um, I love the fact that he says quickly there too, as in your reaction to things ought to be slow and measured. Your reactions to things ought to be slowly, slow and measured. When we find ourselves in anxious issues, it's usually because we run ahead. Everything is urgent. Everything is urgent, right? We get this tyranny of the urgent, and it rules over us, and we, we suddenly feel like we have to answer everything, and we have to call that person right now. That person is in another city and isn't going to be back for four days, and there's, you can't do anything about what they're doing right now. You've got to call them right now, right now. And this is the tyranny of the urgent, your mind getting quickly shaken. Oh no, what are we going to do? And so you watch somebody say something about Christ has already returned. Look, he's in Houston right now, baptizing people. And you go, oh, 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 no, oh no. And, and you call your pastor. What are we going to do about this? A wise pastor will go, it's a video. Relax. Relax and remember what the scripture says. Just chill. Take a deep breath and then they'll walk you through it. And they'll talk with you. But do not be quickly shaken. So how do we not be quickly shaken? I just want to give you some words of encouragement. First is to saturate yourself with the word of God. This ought to be on your tongue, heart, mind all the time. You ought to memorize and know scripture. And the best way to memorize and know scripture is to read it all the time. Read the thing. Read the Bible and memorize it. Now, the Bible, to be fair, never tells you to read it except in one occasion, and that's to read it in front of people at corporate worship. It tells you to eat it. It tells you to feast on it. It tells you to meditate on it. It tells you to sleep on it. It tells you to, to lay it up as a foundation to your, to your walk. It tells you to lay it up in your heart. It tells you to grab hold of it and cleave to it. It tells you to saturate yourself with it. It never tells you just to read it. The only the instruction to read the Bible is to read the Bible out loud at church. Check. Right? We've done that. Now we want to saturate ourselves with it. But the easiest way to memorize scripture is to read it, to listen to it, to read it over and over and over. It's the easiest way to memorize. Saturate yourself with the words, Romans uh, 12, verse 2. Second, remember Jesus' work. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, 21 and 22 tells you to remember Jesus' work. He has redeemed you and rescued you. Three, pursue holiness and goodness. Pursue holiness and goodness. Be excellent at what is good. Be innocent of evil, Romans 16, 19. Be excellent at what is good. Be innocent of evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Again, in 2 Corinthians 14, 20, it says the same thing. Be excellent at good. Make your requests known to God in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. So we've got saturate yourself with the word. Remember Jesus' work. Pursue holiness and goodness. Make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, think on these things that you have been taught so that you understand. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, in other words, surround yourself with good, solid, Bible teaching and think on these things which you have been taught. Think about them. Bible teaching and think about them. 
2 Timothy 2, 7. And then, what is it Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and with all your strength. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and with all your strength. So, we don't get quickly shaken when we are saturating ourselves in God's presence and word. When that is the case, we won't be quickly shaken. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 46. See to it that you are not alarmed. And then he goes on and says, this is not the end. When you see these things happening, when you see people clamoring to tell you Christ has come, we've missed it. Or when you see people clamoring to say the end has already happened and all of this is just spiritual now and we can separate the spiritual from the physical and there's only flesh is bad, spirit is good. When you see that kind of nonsense, Jesus says this is not the end. It's almost as if Jesus looks at us and goes, stop it. Stop it. This is not the end. The end is coming and it will be real. It will be physical. Jesus will come back bodily the same way he went. In Acts chapter 1, we're promised this. He says, he will come back the same way you have seen him go. He's coming back in a literal, physical return. Now, I just want to be clear. How that plays out is all over the map in interpretation. And godly men hold all kinds of interpretations as to how that plays out, the nuances of what what happens first and when and where and how, how we should read Revelation and how we should read Daniel and how we should read these things. There's one thing that is true across the board with godly believers, and that is that this is a physical return of Jesus Christ. That he is coming back and he will come back and set things right. And heaven is a real physical place. It is not some ethereal realm where your body is gone to waste and gone and you have some, you're some spirit being floating on a cloud with a harp, on a cloud with a harp for a thousand years. That's not heaven. That's not even near heaven. That's not even pictured in heaven. That's not even a picture in the Bible. That's not in there. That's some random cartoonist who drew harps in a little cherub. That's, that has nothing to do with scripture. It's not in there. Heaven talks about, I mean, the Bible talks about us having places to work and, and things to do with our hands and expanding of things. And God, in, even in the book of Revelation, it says, Behold, I am making all things new. The last, the last chapter of the book, he says, I am making all things new. Present tense active. He is going to continue to make things. He's going to continue to build out creation. This is Phenomenal. The infinitely creative God does not stop being creative because it's the end of the book. No, he starts being more creative. Heaven is not an end. It's a beginning. It's what it means when it says, Behold, it is born. Or we translate it, it is finished there in verse 8 of chapter 21. It is, it is born. It is born and we move forward. So do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Some think that Matthew 24 is arguing about uh, the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. And, you know, we can talk about that at lunch. That's fine. I don't want to dwell very long on that. But Matthew 24 doesn't seem to be talking about that to me because Jesus says some things that didn't happen in the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. The day of the Lord is what's referred to in Matthew 24. And and it seems to deal with a great deal more than just the destruction of the Jewish temple. Seems to deal a great deal more with just the destruction of the Jewish temple. And you can argue that the Jewish temple is a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the second coming. And that's fine. We can talk about that again. We can talk about that at lunch. I don't want to dwell on this very much except to say the day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Almost always. In every place in Scripture, the day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's one exception, and that's in the Old Testament, when there are a few mentions of it, which it refers to both the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. There are a few mentions of it where it refers to both, and it's got a dual meaning. But for the most part, the day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Christ, and Paul clearly does not have 70 AD in mind when he's writing this letter. 
He doesn't have the destruction of the temple in mind when he's writing this letter. He has the return of Jesus Christ in mind when he's writing this letter. So that's where we're going to land when we're thinking about Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So now we have a discussion of the coming of the day. And uh, we are going to have to divide this into two sermons, which I knew was going to happen. I knew I was going to get excited about talking about heaven. Um, so, but let's go through some of this just quickly. First, we, we see verse 3 and following. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So let's pause right there. And I just want, I just want to, by way of closing today, I want to, which means nothing when a pastor says that. But by way of closing, I want to think about the man of lawlessness versus Jesus. The man of lawlessness versus Jesus. We have the man of lawlessness. And to, to think about this, note first, this is the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. This is not a general rebellion or a general lawlessness. In 1 John, it says, the Antichrist, you know the Antichrist is coming into the world, and many Antichrists have come. So we know that there's this idea that there are people who are Antichrist. Antichrist, by the way, Antichrist does not mean necessarily opposed to, but rather, more specifically, in substitution of. Anti means in substitution of. So these are not merely people who are opposed, though they are opposed. They are rather people who are trying to take the place of Jesus. So in John, in 1 John, it says that there are Antichrist, the Antichrist capital, the Antichrist is coming to the world, and there are many Antichrists in the world now. As if there are many false teachers in the world now, you need to be aware that there are people who will try to substitute what they say for what Christ says. And the, the trickiest way that they do this is to go, well, the Bible says this, but what it really means is, here's a secret meaning of what the Bible means. And they'll throw out to you some historical facts, some Ugaritic texts. If they're academics, they'll be like, well, the Ugaritic texts say blah, 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 blah. Ugaritic means Babylonian and has nothing to do with the Bible. So if anybody ever goes, the Ugaritic text testifies, that's not a biblical citation. That is a worldly citation taken from other religions. Just toss that out whenever you hear that. But so if you're in the more academic realm, that's what they'll do. And if you're in the more spiritual realm, they'll say things like, well, you know, if you, if you read it in the original Hebrew... And then they'll spout off some nonsense that has nothing to do with Hebrew. And I know because I read it in the original Hebrew. And then they'll tell you, well, that word means, and you'll go, no, it doesn't. And if their argument is defeated as simple as, no, it doesn't, it's not a very good argument. If your arguments are defeated as simple as, no, it's not, it's not a very good argument, is it? So, we see these things. I just want you to be aware that Antichrist is, yes, one specific person being talked about here, the man of lawlessness, and also a whole variety of people. But what Paul is addressing here is the rebellion and the Antichrist, a specific thing that's going to happen and a specific person that is going to come. It's a specific Rebellion. It's not merely a tendency. If you jump down to verse 7 here, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So Paul's not writing this ignorantly. He's not writing this saying, Well, lawlessness has not happened yet. No, lawlessness is abundant now. Just like there are many antichrists, lawlessness has been coming and is in the earth. Rebellion. Think of lawlessness as rebellion, right? Uh, the lawless one, speaking of that, does not simply mean rebellion, but it means more than that, one who has no authority over him. One who refuses authority. One who is refusing all authority, saying he is the law. He is the chief one. He makes his own plans. And in the 1800s, there were many uh, theologians who described lawlessness as humanism. Man exalting himself, saying, I can decide for myself all 
that I am. I don't need to submit to anything. And we have seen the result of that even now, saying I don't have to submit to biological truth. I don't have to submit to reality. Your reality is different than mine. No, it isn't. They're the same. Reality is reality. That wall exists. If I try to walk through it, I will hurt my nose. This is, this is truth. There is absolute truth. If you don't believe there's absolute truth, I would challenge you to run through a brick wall. It will at least wake something up. Do it head first. <laughs> Please, if you're listening on the podcast, I'm teasing. Don't take me seriously for that. The specific rebellion that is coming, it sounds an awful lot like what's described in, Raf- in, in Revelation 19, right? When the uh, people stand against God, when the, the beast and the dragon are there and God casts them into the, into the sea, Jesus comes back and in his coming, there's this huge rebellion of man against them. Sounds an awful lot like that. That would be the rebellion, right? That would, that would be the rebellion, whether you take it figuratively or literally. That's what he's talking about, that, the rebellion, Talking about a specific rebellion. And he's talking about a specific person. Remember this, brother and sister. You will not be caught off guard. Flip back over to chapter, uh, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Just one page turn in your Bible. And look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You are fully aware of this. This is not a surprise. You are fully aware Everybody else, verse 3, everybody else will be claiming peace and security and suddenly destruction will come upon them as in labor pains. And then verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night and of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Pay attention. You, you are aware of these things. You, you can see these things. You have no reason to fear that it's going to creep up on you. It won't creep up on you. You are a part of this kingdom. And it is our king who is returning. It won't creep up on you. The man of lawlessness, as compared here, just look at some things about him. Verse 3, let no one deceive you. In any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The man of lawlessness is the son of destruction, a phrase that is only ever used in the New Testament in one other place to describe Judas. When Jesus is praying and says, I have kept all that you've given me, and I've taken, I've kept all that you've given me except for the son of destruction, Judas. The man of lawlessness is a Judas. He's a Judas. So just think about that. Think about that for a minute. One of the indications of this man of lawlessness is that he's going to look an awful lot like the disciples. He's going to look an awful lot like Christians. He's going to look an awful lot and he's going to turn on everyone. This is the man of lawlessness. Second, he looks like that. Second, he he opposes and exalts himself over everything. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he's exalting himself over all these other things, proclaiming himself even to be God. Proclaiming himself master over his fate. This is anti-Christ. He's not simply proclaiming that he is somehow great. He is also proclaiming himself as a substitute for Jesus. He is God. He's the one that you must obey. He's the one that you must follow. He has no one he points to as authority. Now, for years, there were many people who said they could see the Pope becoming this because the Pope says that his word is divine. I know he doesn't say it in those phrases. He says it's on par with the divine and that he, he speaks for and on behalf of God. Now, that sounds an awful lot like this. Yet, there have been many popes. They're all confused and they're all weak. We have not yet seen the man of lawlessness in this yet. Maybe. 
Maybe that's where he comes from. Maybe he comes from the Baptist denomination. Maybe he's one of us. Maybe he shows up and he's something else. There's two things that are true. He's going to be a Judas, and he's going to exalt himself over Jesus. And then third, he's going to take his seat in the temple. Now, what Paul has in mind in temple here is curious. What Paul has in mind when he's talking about the temple here is curious because when he uses the term temple in the Bible, most often in the New Testament, he uses it to refer to the people of God. He's going to take his seat in the temple. He's going to take his seat among the people of God. Perhaps this is this man of lawlessness is one who comes into the body of Christ and tries to take over the body of Christ. That makes sense. The other option is that he takes his seat literally in the physical temple in the in Jerusalem. That makes sense too, honestly. Like you let's deal with it. We can talk about it at lunch. I don't know which one it is. I think it's probably the the former, but it could be the latter. The idea that he comes among the people of God and tries to usurp the place of sacred worship is the point. So this is the man of lawlessness. Now let's contrast that by with Jesus. The man of lawlessness who exalts himself. Jesus who humbles himself. Taking the very form of a servant, washing the feet of his people. Right? The man of lawlessness who tries to usurp and steal the body of Christ. Jesus who calls to you and beckons to you to come to himself as your good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. The man of lawlessness who says, I am great. And Jesus who goes, I love you. And you are mine. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. Whenever you are shaken in this world and you are worried about the man of lawlessness coming, remember that Jesus is so great, he appealed to Judas to repent. The Last Supper, you see it three times. Jesus kneels down and washes Peter's feet. And addresses Judas, giving him mercy. Do you remember the story? He's got all his disciples around him. And Peter is there, loudmouth, braggadocious Peter's there. And so are all the others. And Judas is there. And it says, he goes around and washes everybody's feet. And he says, Peter stands up and goes, no, no, don't wash my feet. You will not wash my feet. And Jesus goes, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no part with me. And Peter says, well, not just my feet then, my head, my body, in his, you know, super excited Peter way. Get all of me, Jesus. Get all of me. You know, Peter might have been charismatic. I don't know. He's, he's jumping up and down. And, and Jesus says, Peter, you don't need to be washed. You've been washed. Just your feet are dirty. Very plain, very ordinary. And yet, if you consider the context, he's not talking to Peter. Judas is mentioned at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage. That's the Hebrew author way of saying, hey, Jesus is addressing Judas. He washes Peter's feet. He goes around and he washes Judas's feet too. Two times in that passage, passively calling for Judas to repent without embarrassing him. He doesn't embarrass him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus calls him to repent without going, hey, you. You, liar, cheater, swindler, stealer, who's been robbing from the money bag, who's been walking with us for three years, who, who has been uh, both an encouragement to everybody in the group and a discouragement to my soul, who I have already called twice the son of the devil. You, you, repent. He doesn't do that. Instead, he washes his feet. And then it comes to dinner time, and John the disciple is shoved up against Jesus, right, as always. And Peter's like, hey, ask him who he's talking about, who's going to betray him. Jesus, the second time, refers to Judas passively. One of you is going to betray me. That's a passive way of calling him not to do it. It's a passive way of repentance, calling him to repent. One of you is going to betray me. He's heavy. They all know it. They all see it. One of you is going to betray me. And what does Jesus do? They lean up against him and they say, hey, who is it? Who is it? And Jesus goes, the one who dips after me. And he dips and he says it so beautifully, so specifically. He gives Judas the honored sop. And no one in the room realizes what he's saying. 
Do you understand that means that he was again protecting Judas from embarrassment of any kind? Guarding Judas's heart. And he hands him the honored position at the table. Can you imagine the look between Jesus and Judas? I don't know how Judas could have done it. I don't. Look into my Savior's face. I look into my Savior's face now through Scripture. I open the Bible and I see it, and I'm broken. I can't, I couldn't possibly do it. I'd be like, just be on the floor. And he hands it to him. The honored position at the table. And he does it in such a way that no one in the room knows. And I think there's a message for us. Everyone at the table dips after he does. If you've ever been at a Passover meal, everybody dips after the host. The host dips and gives to the honored guest and then passes the thing. All of them dip. And so John's going, which one is it? And Peter's going, I bet it's Thomas. Right? And Judas stands up to leave and they're like, well, this is normal. Judas goes off to pay for stuff all the time. Like that's, no one thinks twice about it. Jesus called Judas to repent. Consider the opposite. So the man of lawlessness versus Jesus. We know Jesus. There's no reason for us to fear the man of lawlessness. We know our Savior. We know how powerful He is. We know how great He is. We know how majestic He is. And we know that when He comes back, He destroys the man of lawlessness with a word. In His coming, the man of lawlessness is defeated. He's called the Son of Destruction. You realize that means He's already lost? He's already destroyed. He's already lost. We do not need to fear or be shaken or worry. The man of lawlessness has been defeated in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has offered repentance. He has offered forgiveness to us. That's our God. So compare the two and and marvel. Marvel at Jesus and what He does. How beautiful is our God and our King. And we will pick up next week. There's so much more to say. We might be in this longer than I expected. Um.